Well, good morning. Let's all stand and um, turn to uh, Luke chapter 10 in your Bibles. We're going to look at that. We're going to actually start in verse 1. Oh yeah, kids, you're dismissed, by the way. <laughs> They're like, please let us go. Okay. So here's what we're going to read this morning. If you don't have a Bible in the in the seat in front of you, there's a Bible. And uh, we'll be on page 506 in those Bibles. And um, the uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's yours. Just take it, keep it, use it, and uh, you're welcome to have that. So, But let's read together Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers from his harvest, or into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house whenever you enter a town and they receive you. Eat what is set before you. Heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Thus says the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So what we have here. Um, is Jesus's instructions to 72 people that he sent out to proclaim to the people of Israel that the kingdom of God, the long-awaited kingdom of God, had arrived. And more importantly, that their Messiah was walking among them. And so what we want to do is we want to take these this morning, we want to analyze the instructions Jesus gave and see what, what instruction it can give us for how we too are to proclaim the, the presence, the power, uh, uh, the effect of the kingdom among our friends and loved ones. Now, I told you that we were going to do this last week, and so I want to I kind of give a little warning um, that what we're not going to do um, this morning, and you'll never hear me do from this platform, is say, I'm going to give you five easy steps to lead your friends and loved ones to Jesus. Do you know Why? There are no five easy steps to lead your friends and loved ones to Jesus. If you take five, five easy steps and lead your friends and loved ones anywhere, it ain't to Jesus, okay? Because, because Jesus speaks of a more involved process of, of a, a person being born again. And, and if you know, ladies, uh, especially that, that, that birth is a process. It, it, it involves conception and development and, and all these things that go into it until you come to a crisis point of birth. And, and once you're born, you are born. You can't be unborn, right? Right. I mean, it's, 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 it's official. And so we don't want to, to take what Jesus has said about people being uh, having the gospel proclaimed to them and dumbing it down to a three step, five step, 10 step process. Amen. 
Okay, with that, in, with that said, apparently you all agree with me. You can all go home now. Um, with that said, in Luke chapter 9, the chapter previous to the one we read, Christ had sent his 12 disciples that we're more familiar with out on a very similar mission to the one that we find described here. We're told in that passage in Luke chapter 9 that Christ gave them power and gave them authority over all demons and authority to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now, all those words boil down to three specific missions within this, this idea of Jesus sending them out. First, they were given authority to demonstrate Christ's power. This is not something, and don't ever make this mistake of thinking this, this is not something that they could have done on their own. They couldn't just go out and say, all right, I'm going to go out and heal me some people today. I'm going to go out and, and evict some demons today. They couldn't have done that. The power to cast out demons, the power to heal diseases was delegated to them. It's important to remember. If you don't remember it, you're going to get a real big head. Second... Second, they were commissioned to proclaim Christ's authority. Did you notice that their message that they were told to preach sounded much different than is often proclaimed in churches, sadly? It wasn't just them going out from town to town, from house to house, from person to person, and saying God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Tom Hall likes to say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your plan. No, instead of this, this kind of easy believism, touchy-feely message, they were declaring the arrival of a new kingdom. They were saying that some seismic shift has happened in the cosmos, that the kingdoms of this world were now becoming the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. There is a new king in charge. That was the basic message of the gospel. And guess what? It still is. It still is. They weren't inviting followers into their new movement and, and manipulating them into decisions. They were declaring God's absolute dominion over the entire earth. Thirdly, they were empowered to represent Christ's presence. Luke says that they were sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. This wasn't just about going out. This wasn't just about them going out and finding people and telling them of all the details about Jesus or even physically dragging them before Jesus. But it was about bringing Jesus to them, bringing his power right to their door. They were representing or representing Christ. Now. Just one chapter later, chapter 10, Jesus commissions a larger sampling of the masses that followed him, 72 in number, and has given them a very similar set of instructions. What does this teach us? Well, let's find out. We learn, first of all, that Jesus' intended method, or his, intend, or his intention, rather, for the, for the advancing of the kingdom and where, it bears, where the responsibility lies, would apply more to more than just a handful of clerics, handful of apostles, handful of priests, pastors, elders. It, the best way to describe this is I was watching a documentary recently about the Islamic Revolution in 1979 in Iran. Now, a major change occurred in Iran with the embracing of, of Shia, 
Uh, it was a minority sect of Islam. We hear so much about Shia, Shia and the Shiite uh, sect, but it's actually just a minority sect of Islam. And it's a sect that holds vast theological differences from the majority Sunni Muslims. Uh, the, the Sunni believe that the Quran has ultimate authority, but the Shiites believe that Allah speaks to just a select few clerics who are subsequently empowered to rule all the other people with an iron fist in order to fulfill Allah's wishes. And in this case in Iran, as you'll remember, it was the Ayatollah Khomeini that, that had that authority. But what I want you to understand is there are many churches and many congregations that run their church like that. They say, well, God has spoken to the pastor. God has spoken to the elders. And so I have no responsibility in this matter of advancing the kingdom of God. This is a false, damnable, heretical doctrine. Thank you, Paul. I said this is false. It's damnable. It's heretical. This is not the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, what Christ commanded for the church is that every believer has to participate in that demonstration, that proclamation, that representation that was originally tr- entrusted to the disciples. We can't tolerate anymore this professionalizing of the ministry. Hebrews or Ephesians 4 rather teaches that God gave the church pastors and evangelists etc in order to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, let that soak in. Biblically, I'm not in ministry. We're all in ministry. And that the job of pastors and prophets and teachers and evangelists, they are to equip the whole body so that the whole body can go out there and bring the gospel to the world. It's for the work of the ministry, the building up of the body of Christ. We're all in this together. Last week, we talked about how John in 1 John says that we know that we're from God. Now, we pointed out that this means, this from God, means that we're commissioned by God, that we're commissioned into his kingdom service. And this morning, I want to focus on, last week we talked about our responsibility globally. This morning, I want to talk about our responsibility to locally demonstrate, proclaim, and represent Christ in our immediate surroundings. So notice in our text today, if you still have Luke chapter 10 open, you might want to keep your finger in there for the uh, remainder of the service because we'll be going back and forth to it. But notice that our, our text begins today by saying that Jesus commissioned 72. And then it says this, it says, he sent them out on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, in this opening sentence, we learn two very important principles about sharing the awesome message of Christ within our circles of influence. Jesus tells the 72 to go two by two. In other words, don't be a lone ranger, don't go by yourself. And there are probably a lot of reasons for this, but let me point out, <coughs> excuse me, that Jesus seems to be indicating that reaching our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, and our families is a task that becomes safer and more effective as we bear the burden together, as we do it together. When I've got, for example, when I'm pursuing the opportunity of sharing the gospel with somebody, when I've got somebody that I really want to 
share the message of Jesus, the the message of hope in Christ with. I'll often share the fact with the people that I pray with on a regular basis. And I do that so that they can pray too, that I'll be, have opportunities and be successful. I also might invite my unsaved friend to a gathering or an event where other believers will be present, like a church service like this or a small group. And that's so there'll be this synergy of, of people working together to present the gospel to them. That, this way I don't feel alone in the work I'm doing and I'm not trying to just get an evangelistic not on my belt. Rather, what I'm doing is I'm exposing my lost friends to like-minded believer who may actually be used by God to bring understanding to a situation I'm not familiar with or answer some question I don't know the answer to. Now, guess what? There really are questions I don't know the answer to. I know you're all mind-blown right now, but I don't know everything. I'm just kidding. All the visitors are saying, man, this guy is an arrogant jerk. It's all tongue-in-cheek, I assure you. Um, the, the great reason, one of the great reasons that it's so important to be vitally connected to a body is for this, so that we have the synergy to help each other reach others for Christ. But notice he didn't only send them out two by two. Christ also sent the 72, listen, ahead of him into every town and place where he himself was about to go. They, they went before Christ. This makes sharing the, the gospel an act of faith. Let me explain. When I go, when I go out Monday through Saturday and I'm sharing the gospel with friends, loved ones, when I go, I'm go I'm I'm going to where I believe that Jesus is going to eventually show up. Now listen to me. When I go and I present the 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 very first seeds of the gospel, I'm going and doing that because I believe Jesus is eventually going to show up in that person, that family, that situation. Uh, see, whether it's my school, my workplace, my neighborhood, or family, it doesn't matter. When I go expecting Jesus to show up, it imbues me with a real sense of mission in everything I'm undertaking. I'm preparing the way for Jesus. Now, if you'll remember that term, preparing the way for Jesus, that's exactly what John the Baptist did. He, he showed up, he was baptizing people for repentance, and he was preparing them for the time when Jesus would be revealed, getting Israel ready to finally meet their Messiah. Isaiah had prophesied that John would prepare the way of the Lord and proclaim, clear the way for him. Do you think that one of the reasons, now listen carefully, let the Holy Spirit work in your heart. Do you think that one of the reasons we have so little impact on our jobs and our schools for the Lord is that we really don't expect him to show up where we're going? I mean, do you get up in the morning expecting Jesus to jump in the car with you as you head to work. I'm not saying, do you know it by faith? Do you know because some preacher said that? I mean, do you have a sense that when you show up and you walk through the door of work, when you walk through the door of your school, that Jesus Christ is going to show up there? You are preparing the way for his arrival. What does that look like practical? Two things. It means to be intentional. Be intentional. Do we show up, as I said, every morning at work to expand God's kingdom or merely earn a paycheck? Do we go to school to impact lives for Christ and advance his kingdom? Or do we primarily go just to get a diploma and get out of there? What is our intention for where we're going? I lived so many years being a very good Christian on Sundays and a very decent moral guy Monday through Saturday. I wouldn't 
some kind of shame to Christ. But when I went to work, I was there because I had to be there. But when I was about 30 years old or so, the Lord convicted me of this. And I decided to go to work every day with an expectation of what Christ wanted to do through me. And by the way, I was not a pastor at that point, okay? I was working a 9 to 5, 40-hour week, grind job just like you do, most of you, every day. But I showed up with this expectation. What does Jesus want to do in my workplace? And I'm telling you, I don't know how many people came to Jesus because of that, but it changed my life. It changed my life to, to take a different view of how to approach my workplace. I realized that God had called me to be a missionary to that place. And guess what? They were funding it. It's crazy. I didn't have to send out letters. I didn't have to bring slideshows to churches. All I had to do was show up. They would pay me and I could share the gospel there. Pretty cool deal, huh? Well, guess what? When you get up in the morning and you get ready to go to work, guess what? You're a missionary to that place. And they're paying you to be there. What a deal. It changed my life. It created all kinds of opportunities for me to bring glory to his name. So first is be intentional. The second thing is to be prayerful. I cannot say that I have faith for that which I do not pray. Well, I'm believing for this. I'm believing for that. Are you praying for it? Because see, prayer is the way faith gets feet. If I'm not praying for something, if I'm not praying for someone to come to know Christ, I really don't believe they're going to come to know Christ. Help me out here. It's lonely up here. I can't say I have faith for that which I'm not praying. How often are we found, be honest with yourself, how often are we found calling out names of the lost ones that we love before the Lord? When, when we're truly burdened for Christ, when we really say, God, I want you to show up. I'm preparing your way. Please show up. We will be compelled to pray. We won't be able to hold it back when we really believe God is going to show up. And this leads us to the next instruction of Jesus to the 72. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. Whose harvest? It's not about notches on our belt, like I said earlier. It's his harvest. Jesus is saying that the great need is obvious. Anybody who turns on the news, who walks outside, who goes to school, who goes to work, knows that there's a great need. But that there is a critical workplace shortage, amen, of laborers in the field for Jesus. So what should the church do? Should we wring our hands and say, oh, this world is going to hell in a handbasket and what are we going to do and crime and politics and all this stuff? Should we strategize? Should we call conferences and sit around and, and, and make our grand 20-year plan for the evangelization, uh, evangelization of the world? Should we just say, we got to shut everything down and rush into the fields? Well, the answer to the fir- to, to, is, first of all, to all of the above, no. No, to none of that. How often, let me ask you this question. If you're like me, you may not have ever considered, but how long, how often have we gone before we were sent? 
How often have we just showed up unprepared before we were sent? Now listen, when I say before we were sent, some of you are like, whew, I've never been sent. I've never been sent to share the gospel. I don't share the gospel. I am not suggesting that you need the heavens to part and a sunbeam to hit you in the face to know that you have a part to share in the gospel. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying, what I am saying is that we need to pray earnestly for two things. For divine appointments and for discernment and discerning hearts. Divine appointments, if you don't ever ever heard that term, they speak to the seemingly chance meetings arranged by the Holy Spirit. See, they're not chance meetings at all. They're, they're when you or others find yourself at the right place at the right time to proclaim Christ's story. But we also need to long and pray for discerning hearts so that we'll be led by the Holy Spirit to speak the right thing at the right time. Do you know a lot of damage can be done by speaking the right thing at the wrong time? And, or the wrong thing at the right time, I guess. I don't know how that, how that works. We need to acknowledge, just like we said earlier, that God alone, God alone is the Lord of the harvest. You are a hired hand. You're a, you're a field laborer, but he gets to decide when it's time to plant, when it's time to work it, when it's time to harvest it. He decides that. He's the Lord of the har- harvest. It's he who draws people to Christ. We read that scripture last week where Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the father draws him. He's the one who prepares them to believe and prepares them to obey. But as his children, we should be praying for the harvest to come in for his glory. Amen. We should be praying that it comes in every day that we should be praying. And more than that, when God, as he did in Isaiah six, cries out, here it is. Who shall we send? Who will go for us with this message? We should be like Isaiah, transformed by the spirit and stand up and say, Here I am. Here I am. Send me. Send me. Next, Jesus tells the 72, go go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. And all the church said, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, greet no one on the road. Jesus says three things in this part. First, this is not going to be easy. He uses the highly comforting analogy of sheep walking among wolves. This reminds us as believers that we can anticipate rejection. We can anticipate persecution. And in some cases, we can anticipate martyrdom. Because I don't know if you've ever watched a nature documentary. But wolves do not bully sheep. They devour them. And Jesus said, I'm sending you out to walk around like sheep in the middle of a bunch of wolves. In other places, the New Testament tells us the basis for this expectation of rough going as well as the reward of it. In John 15, 20, for example, Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But be honest, I mean, when we're persecuted, even in the most minor ways, don't you just feel like something went wrong? Don't they know I'm trying to help them? Don't they know that this is the message of life? Why are they being so mean? 
But this, this statement of Jesus that, that if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. This is a basis for our expectation of persecuted, but for persecution. Don't be surprised by it. Acts 14.22, though, it talks about the promise and the reward of persecution. Paul and Barnabas are telling the disciples, they say, through many, pers- through many tribulations, rather, we must enter the kingdom of God. And you think, wow, that's, that's no fun. I have to run the gauntlet to get in the kingdom. No, you're, you're reading that wrong. The, the idea is that you're being promised that there's a payoff at the end of all this. No matter how difficult things are, through those tribulations, through those persecutions, through even if they try to kill you, even if they succeed, it is through those tribulations that you will enter the kingdom of God. It's quite a promise, isn't it? If you obey Jesus... You'll be persecuted on some level or another, but you will be fellowshipping, as Paul says in Philippians, you'll be fellowshipping with his sufferings and you'll be gaining for yourself a glorious entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, Jesus tells the 72 to leave all of their provisions at home. What? He says money bags, knapsacks, sandals. Why would he tell them this? Because he wanted those that he would send out as sheep among wolves to to not depend upon themselves, but to depend upon the protection and the provision of someone else. Jesus himself was going to be their, their provider. Last, he says, greet no one on the road. This is not to be rude or dismissive. Doesn't mean that when we're walking on the road, somebody says hi to us, we go like this, you know. He's not telling us to be rude or dismissive. He, he's, he's saying that, that, you know, we need to, it, 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 it's an admonition rather, that, that instead of being rude and dismissive, it's our admonition to stay focused on the mission at hand. Now, is that really important for him to instruct us? I'd say yes. I have never been on a mission trip where this wasn't the case to some degree or another. There's always someone on the team who gets overly distracted by the sights, the cultural experience, and they forget that they're there to engage in God's work of rescuing the perishing. But we also do it. Now, think, so yeah, so I'm not going to do that if I go on a mission trip. Well, hold on just a second. We're not off the hook that easily. We also stop to greet people on the road. When we walk down the road of life... But our attention is constantly demanded or distracted by things we want or things we see or by the approval of others. Christ wants us to stay focused as we prepare the road, as we prepare the way for for Christ and, and our friends for the revelation of him. Stay focused. Stay sharp. Jesus' next instruction is very helpful to successfully seeing people converted into obedient disciples. Listen to this. Verse 5. He says, whatever house you enter, first say this, peace be to your house, peace be to this house. If a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him and remain in the, uh, if, if, but if not, it will return to you but, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Now listen. Jesus tells the 72 that they are to identify persons of peace. This simply means to locate, by the Spirit's leading, those who have been divinely prepared to give you a hearing. Jesus is encouraging us 
to be evangelistic snipers. You hear what I'm saying here? Yeah, I knew somebody would get real excited about that. He's encouraging us to be evangelistic snipers. He wants us to locate target persons, target families, and concentrate our efforts on them relationally. But oftentimes, we in the church are more prone to carpet bomb witness. We just, we, you know, we do this by delegating our witnessing to a t-shirt we wear. It's like, we're walking around like this. You know, I have never, I have Christian t-shirts. I'm not judging you if you have Christian t-shirts. But I have never once been walking through the mall with Christian t-shirt on and had people fall on their knees and saying, what must I do to be saved? Never happened. We put bumper stickers on our car. I've never seen a traffic jam on the freeway because of a, a revival or repentance service broke out because of my bumper sticker. We may even have a big church direct mailing campaign so we can just kind of, you know, sit at home in our underpants watching Spongebob eating Cheetos and send out invitations so people will hopefully come. And I know y'all do it. And, um, and we can and, and people will come uh, and, and hear the gospel. But listen to me. Well, I'm not necessarily downplaying T-shirts and bumper stickers and direct mailings. I mean, those things work sometimes. They're fine, I guess. But Jesus told us in this instruction to be much more relational and much more frontline. I don't delegate my sharing of the gospel to my wardrobe. See what I'm saying? He told us to enter houses. He told us to declare peace. A t-shirt has a hard time doing that. You can't do it with a postcard. You have to be face-to-face, one-to-one. Sometimes, no, no, no. Oftentimes, it's messy. It's awkward. But it always yields better results, even if it takes a whole lot longer. But if it's messy and awkward, how can you tell if you found a person of peace? Well, let me tell you, simply, you know that you found a person of peace by that person's willingness to hear, to engage in dialogue, and not necessarily by their immediate demeanor. Let me illustrate. I've patiently shared the gospel with people who were very, very kind, who were outwardly very welcoming, but who clearly had no desire whatsoever to believe or obey Christ. These people were not persons of peace. I've also had outwardly hostile people, people who had well-rehearsed arguments about why the Bible wasn't true and why God didn't exist, who ended our talks with a direct or even subtle, but I'd like to hear more. These persons were Persons of peace. You understand what I'm saying? It's the desire. It's the like, it's like, are they hooked? Are they wanting to hear more about this Jesus, this gospel, this kingdom? Furthering this point, when Christ says, remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborers, work, the labor deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what's set before you. He's speaking of, of, of pursuing conversion through genuine relationships, ones that take time and effort, faith and patience. He's saying stick it out with people by remaining in their house because he's speaking to Jews with strict 
dietary laws. He tells them to eat what is set before them. To us, he's saying to come into where they live culturally. Come into the culture of your friends. Now, that does not mean if they're Hindus, you put a dot on your head, wrap yourself in a robe, and go throw flowers in an idol. That is not what he's saying. He's saying that it's okay for you to engage in conversation and say, tell me a little bit more about this belief. Tell me what, tell me what it is that this is accomplishing for you. And I guarantee you, if you ask enough questions, you will find that belief systems have inherent weaknesses that can only, that, that, that speak to longings in the human soul that can only be met by Jesus. If you just listen long enough. But a lot, a lot of times we come into these situations with a diheretic mentality and, and no one wants to listen to that. It's relational. It's coming into their culture. We have to engage in meaningful dialogue to order to, in order to better understand who they are. When you find someone in the throes of immorality, Maybe they sleep around. Maybe they abuse alcohol or drugs. Maybe they're, they're, they're self-centered and materialistic. Don't wag your finger and condescend to them in their naughtiness. Instead, use that opportunity, that revelation, to demonstrate how the gospel provides a so much more satisfying answer to life's problems, demands, and temptations. Be patient and considerate. You know, moralistic kind of finger-wagging things rarely work. You know why? Because there isn't a person alive on this planet that doesn't know deep down in the corner of their side that they are a desperately wicked sinner. There's no one. No one. If they're in their quiet moment and know it. But see, if we'll take the time when people are in their sin to help people see that the gospel is better. It's amazing. Curtis um, just recently has a friend that is, uh, uh, would you call her an agnostic? Is that kind of fair? So she's an agnostic young lady and she's really sweet, but she's, she, you know, has been fairly sexually promiscuous and has some other issues in her life. And, and she, Curtis was sitting down with her a couple weeks ago and she asked, why is it that you Christians have such a prohibition on sex before marriage? And he didn't say, because we're better than you. Because we, we care about morality. And he didn't do that. He said, he explained to her step by step from the Gospels, from, from the New Testament, why God's standard is better, more satisfying, and more fulfilling. to the end. Now, she did not receive Christ that day. But she said, you know, Curtis, you're right. Your argument is right. You see what I'm saying? Now, what if he had gotten on his moral high horse and wagged his finger in her face? Would, would he have ever had that opportunity? And I guarantee you what's happening is her heart is being prepared to receive the coming Messiah. It's happening. You can clap for Curtis. I don't care. That'd be great. I beat him up all the time, so you got to get some respect around here. So, it's good. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, so... Christ's next instruction is where the rubber meets the road. He says in verse 9, Heal the sick in the town and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near you. When was the last time you dared to pray for someone that you knew was not yet a Christ follower? And I don't mean, you know, kneeling down by your bed at night and courageously 
you know, just kind of, uh, or not courageously, but kind of just spitting out some words. Oh, Jesus, please, you know, do something about this person and help them. No, I mean, looking in their eyes and boldly, boldly looking at them in their sickness, in their despair, in their lack and saying, may I pray with you right now? Wow. I'm talking, I'm not talking about here. This is easy. Come on. Right. I mean, it's easy. If someone came up to you right now and said, I have this trouble, you would, you would in a heartbeat, you'd say, let me pray for you. Let me pray for you. I'm talking about when you're in the middle of work, when you're in the middle of school saying, Hey, we got a minute here. Let me just pray. Let me talk to God. I believe God answers prayers and I want to pray for you right now. Can I pray for you right now? I really believe God wants to do something miraculous to help you. And then doing more when you actually pray than just saying grace. Wow. I mean, praying Sunday morning in front of all your Christian friends type of prayers. I mean, the, the believing God that he was going to move heaven and earth to demonstrate his love for your friend. No matter what kind of miracle he had to perform, that you're praying in faith that he's going to do it. Even if they don't know the difference between Jesus and a duck. Just praying for him. Jesus is telling us here, not just to talk about the kingdom of God coming among the lost, but to put it on display. To say, hey guys, the kingdom is here. Let me show you what it looks like. Let me show you this. If God began to rescue your and heal your friends and loved ones, don't you think that they would be a little bit more willing to listen to his story? For some of you, this may take more courage than anything else. But what if, but what would God do? (laughs) Just ask yourself that question. What would God do if we took him at his word? How would Lubbock be impacted? I mean, we wouldn't have anywhere near enough room in this building. If just this group of people just decided that you were going to carry the gospel in words and in deeds out of this building today. Verse 10, but whenever you enter a town and they don't receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Jesus now tells us how to respond when we're completely rejected as we proclaim his message. And we will be. It involves a discernment, an affirmation, and a vindication. The discernment speaks of our spirit-guided determination that the rejection of Christ has been made. When, we de- when the Holy Spirit inside us determines that there's nothing more we can say, there's nothing more we can do, this person has checked out. They are, they are not willing to listen. They have, they have determined by their actions that judgment is preferred to salvation. Well, come on, Mark. No one would prefer judgment. Oh, really? Oh, really? The Bible says that men loved darkness. More than light because their deeds were evil. Men prefer judgment rather than submission to Christ. Matthew 7, 6. Jesus illustrates this principle when he says, Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs. Lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. You don't take something as holy and continue to cast it before those who will just completely disregard it. It's at this point that we must make clear what we feel and why. That's what Jesus means when he says, even the dust of your town 
that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Now, I know that sounds harsh. I'm not declaring that you do that. You meet somebody at the vending machine at work, say, hey, I'd like to tell you about Jesus. I don't want to hear about Jesus. Well, even the dust in my feet, I wipe off against you. I'm not suggesting that. This does not, this is going to shock you. Even Jesus's most strong, even Jesus's most strong commandments do not have to be implemented in a hateful way. Did you know that? Or in a way that makes you sound like a holier than thou self-appointed prophet. But it must be clear. You have to clearly communicate to a person that you're sharing the gospel with where they are. This is so the person will have no delusions about their spiritual state. You know what the biggest problem with the church's evangelistic efforts are right now in the 21st century? Ambiguity. We have such a hard time saying that according to scripture, you appear to be saved and you appear to be lost. Ambiguity is tough for us. It's, it's, it's our big addiction. We're addicted to not hurting anybody's feelings. And so we, we let them live in the delusion of salvation when they're going to hell like a bullet train. And it's sad. See, in the final analysis, to be that honest with people is an act of love. Many people, many times I've had to say to people, I think it would be better for you if we didn't talk about these things anymore because you're obviously not hearing what I'm trying to share. Let me know if you ever want to talk again. See, sometimes we feel like we're failing God if we move on from someone who's clearly not hearing what we're saying. But even the apostles did this in the book of Acts. We're often told that Paul would be preaching in a certain city and that many would hear him gladly and repent. But in almost every instance, we're also told in the same account that there were those in that town, in that city, who did not believe those who persecuted Paul and his team and caused them all sorts of trouble. But Paul did, or rather, let me ask a question. Did Paul stay in that city? Did he stay because he felt like it was his job to, to convince everybody and get them all on the same page? No, he moved on to search for more fruitful fields in which to labor. He moved on. The reason we feel guilty it's because we feel that our job is to convince people that, that, that they need, that they're lost and they need a savior. But let me tell you something. This will set you free if you really believe me. It is not your job. It's not my job to convince anyone of their need for a savior. It is not your job. And it is not my job to convince anyone of the need for a savior. That is the Holy Spirit's job. My responsibility lies in proclamation. The king is here. The kingdom has come. He's opened up the the gates of salvation for everyone who will repent and believe. That's it. We are not God's salesmen. We are God's ambassadors. We haven't been given a case of salvation to go sell door to door. We have been given a message, a holy edict from the king to go declare to the entire world. Whether they believe or not doesn't change anything about the truth of our message. So the affirmation is when Jesus says that we're to disengage from our evangelistic efforts with these words on our lips. Know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. People need to know that they've been offered life, hope, and healing, and that today is the day of salvation, and that a new king is in charge. And this takes the American democratic option off the table. 
No matter, it's no longer a matter of people making a decision for Christ. On the contrary, Christ has come to them, offering them his kingdom, and they have rejected him. And they will bear the responsibility. And that brings us to the vindication. Let's acknowledge the fact that none of us likes to be rejected. Well, I get fired up about being rejected, Mark. No, you don't. Nobody does. But when lost people reject you, they are actually rejecting God. Because you are there in his stead, acting as his representative. Therefore, Jesus reminds us it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. This is so much more clearly stated in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. I think we have that up on the screen, page 584. And it says this, listen to these words carefully. They're chilling. How much more, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? These are people that have rejected the salvation that Jesus freely offers. He said, how much more punishment, how much worse punishment do you think they deserve? Verse 30, for we know him who has said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing. Some Bibles say terrible or dreadful. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You cannot reject God and get away with it. Acts 17 does not say that God now invites everyone to repent. Look it up yourself. Acts 17, Paul says on Mars Hill, he says, and now God commands all men, all women, everywhere to repent. Everyone. You can't reject God and get away with it. Listen to me. He is not a party planner. He's not a door-to-door peddler. He is God And his great name will be vindicated on those who reject him. But we must remember that all of us who claim to be believers have a responsibility to proclaim this message, to demonstrate his power, to proclaim his authority, and to represent his presence. We may do so feebly. Have you ever done it feebly? We may do so feebly. We may make plenty of mistakes. But what you'll find is that if you determine... To obey, soaking your efforts with fully dependent prayer. I mean, dependent on Jesus. Jesus will abundantly supply you with with his strength. And can you imagine, can you just imagine what joy there will be in heaven as you're surrounded by many who you were privileged to share the saving message of life with? Wow, that'll be amazing. Those who you saw make Jesus their Lord. There are a lot of nuances, a lot of nuance to how to share the gospel effectively. So keep praying, keep learning, keep reading. But listen to me, listen, this, I don't want to just entertain you or, or inform you. Determine to get started today. To be thinking about the people that need to know Jesus. And every one of us has some in our circles of influence. Our time is short and our task is great. And so what I want to ask you to do right now is just bow your heads and close your eyes.
I'm not going to ask you to. This is not one of those things that preachers do. I'm not going to just slip up a hand and come forward and do anything. I just want you to listen. I, I, faith without works is dead. You can listen to this message over and over again. And if you don't determine to act, it doesn't mean a single thing. It's been a waste of my time, of God's time, and even your time. So with everything you've just heard, I want you to be, right now, just begin to think about. Look, look for faces in your mind's eye of people that you know in your life need to hear the saving message of Jesus. They need their lives transformed. Just think about it. Just slow down just a second. Don't let yourself get distracted by lunch or anything in this room. or Just think about the people that need to know Jesus in your life. There's plenty, like I said. They are lost. They're under the power of the evil one, as we read last week. And they need rescue. It's not your job to convince them or to rescue them, but it is your job to proclaim to them the truth of this gospel. Now, I don't want you to right now determine that you're going to go straight to their house after... God may speak to some of you to do that, and that's great. But what I want to do is just go back to Jesus' instruction that we pray for the harvest to come in. And so what I want you to do is I want you to pray for two things. And I'm not going to pray. I'm going to pray, but I'm not going to pray for you. I want you to pray yourself. I want you to, I think you need to pray audibly if you're serious and begin to call out their names to Jesus. And I want you to ask two things. The person whose face is in your mind, I want you to to ask God to begin to orchestrate things, divine appointments, whatever, for them to come to know Jesus. And here's the second thing. Here's the tough part. That if God be willing that he uses you in that process. That's going to require faith to believe that he can and obedience to act when he does. Let's begin. Just go ahead. Just begin to pray out those names. Come on. Come on. Fill this room with the sound of the, of the names of people that need Jesus. Come on. Don't be shy. This is serious. This is their eternal destiny. This is their, their bondage to sin and Satan or their freedom in Christ. Come on. Pray like people who are desperate to see people come to know Jesus. Come on. Father, keep those faces, keep those names ever before us. Lord God, help us to stay on mission. Help us not to be distracted by frivolities, distractions. Come on. You may not have spent this much time praying for them in your life, but pray for them right now. Come on, lift up their names to heaven. God, help us. Help us, Lord. Just imagine the state that they're in and imagine what it would be like to see them walking with Christ. Free indeed, because the Son has set them free. Thank you, Jesus. God, break the chains of bondage. 
God caused people who are dead in their sin, their trespasses, to come alive to Christ. Holy Spirit convince their hearts. Holy Spirit orchestrate divine appointments with us and with others. Give us discerning hearts to know what to say, when to say it, how to say it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Now, here's the other thing we talked about. I want you to pray. I want you to begin to pray that God would overcome any obstacle that would keep you from sharing the gospel with them. For some of you, it's fear. For some of you, it's intimidation. For some of you, if we're real honest, it's apathy or even laziness. So pray for yourself now. Turn all your attention of your praying on yourself that you would be you would be made able, that God would embolden you. The, the disciples did this in the book of Acts, and the Bible says when they prayed for boldness to proclaim the message, the very house where they were was shaken, and the Holy Spirit fell on them. Holy Spirit, come now, fill us. Let us receive power to become your witnesses in Lubbock, Texas, in the surrounding area. To our friends, our loved ones scattered across the planet, Lord God. Help us. Lord, convict us. Lord, break us from any distraction that would keep us from being obedient to your call and the gospel, Lord God. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. God, give us a plan, a strategy. Help us to know when to speak and how to speak. Help us, Lord God, but directed by your spirit to create opportunities to speak, to have people over for lunch, Lord God, to bring them into our home, to go visit them. Help us, Jesus. God, we can't do this without you. Forgive us for thinking we could. Lord, we want, we want your power and your presence and your anointing. And you're enabling to preach the gospel to those who need to hear, Lord God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Now, it would be real easy to stick a pin in that and say, okay, we prayed. Let's go to lunch. Let's forget about it. But here's what I want to encourage you to do. Will you just make a commitment? And will you... Will you I didn't have make it raise your hands while your heads were bowed and your eyes were closed, so I'm going to ask you to raise them now. Will you make a commitment that you're going to add, uh, to bring this person before God every single day and that you are going to ask him for an opportunity? He may give it to you, may not, but you're going to ask for an opportunity to do something to invite them deeper somehow this week. If, that, if you're willing to make that commitment before God and others, raise your hand right now. Now, this is serious business. You're doing this covenantally before God. If you're willing to do that, you'll get on the phone, you'll invite them to church, you'll go have coffee with them, you'll do whatever, but but it will be intentional to share the kingdom of God with that person. Praise God. Praise God. Can we give the Lord a hand? Praise God.